We're going to be heading back into a series, so this is going to be Foundations Part 2. And I want to back up a little bit for those of you who have been with us, because if we are remembering all that God has been doing and teaching us and the way these books have blended together in ways that we couldn't have planned or imagined, it's really faith-building. And so I want to back up and kind of think through where we've come um, this year in our teaching because it really does flow extremely well into um, our teaching for today. So remember this year we've been focusing on foundations of our faith. What's the foundation of our faith? What is our faith in? How do we obtain faith What does it mean to have faith? How does our faith work? How does it function? And so to answer those questions, we started the year in the book of Genesis. Some things, if you were with us, you're going to remember, and I'm hoping the Spirit um, connects some of these things for you. But God ordered, He filled, and He rested. He created a universe a universal throne room, a holy temple on earth where he would dwell and rule and share his image with men and women and rule with them, sharing truly his glory. And the whole goal of creation was this, a seventh-day rest where men and women would abide and live with God. That was the purpose. Men and women each serving in unique and yet necessary roles in imaging God. We need both male and female to fully image God. Working together, they collaboratively put God's attributes on display as they fruitfully order the universe, the world, in God's stead. It's the purpose. By the way, church, that's still the purpose for us. But that intended rest, that seventh... by men and women choosing to do life another way. And this other way was personified in the heart of Cain, if you remember Genesis chapter 4, who willfully chooses to go his own way, this other way, out from the presence of the Lord. And so consequently, this other way slides into such degradation and chaos that by the time we get as early into the book as Genesis chapter 5 verse 6, this is recorded. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. You know how we get there? By looking for another way. You with me? And so the Lord wipes out the wickedness, but he rescues and makes a new covenant with Noah. But this too, however, is a one-sided commitment riddled with human failure. And once again, it leaves men and women in need of redemption that they cannot obtain on their own. And so additionally, this other way, which 
started with Adam and Eve and personified in Cain and then culminates in Lemek continues to prove to be quite problematic. And this, this other way once again climaxes in the story at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to get there. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I want to catch back up here. But we paused there at Genesis chapter 7. We didn't quite get to 11. And if you remember, we then took a break and we headed into the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, we studied Jesus as the Supreme One, the Rescuer, the Satan Skull Crusher from Genesis 3.15. Jesus is God Himself returned to come and get us. You hear that, church? Jesus is God Himself who comes back and says, none of these other guys were able to do it. Therefore, I'm coming to get you Myself. This is Jesus. And this is why He is the messenger that far surpasses every other messenger. Because he's God himself. And so Hebrews says, put your faith in him and him alone. Cling to Christ. Hold fast to him. There is no other messenger. That was the message of Hebrews. And so in Christ Jesus, we live now in God, in his rest. We enter into God's presence by resting in Christ as we were originally intended to do so. And resting in Him, we're putting His attributes on display in our lives, and we're bringing the blessing of the knowledge of God to others. We are reproducers. Just like Adam and Eve were um, commanded to reproduce in Genesis, we are also commanded to reproduce, but not just physically, but spiritually. Church, by espousing, by telling the truth of God, we reproduce spiritually. By the Spirit of God who lives in us, the world is blessed by God's people. God says, through you, my people, the entire world will be blessed. Friends, that promise is still true. And so following Hebrews, we spent some time in James. And if you're following the logic here, this, this necessary of this world being blessed is, is contingent upon our faith working so that they can see the glory of God. And so James strongly and practically challenges our faith in its practical work. Remember, the study of James was not about how to obtain faith. That was Hebrews. But James's epistle is aimed for us to know what true faith looks like, what genuine faith looks like when we have it. And one of the phrases that I took away from Ian's teaching that I like, that's been rattling around in my head, and I've been seeking to meditate on as apply, is James is the book of James serves as a troubleshooting manual to diagnose the effectiveness and the function of our faith. Is my faith at work? It's really helpful. And so that brings us today where we're going to start a six-week study in the book of Genesis, finishing in Foundations. We're going to take a hiatus next week 
uh, Nathan Lowe was offered, he was going to do communion anyway. And um, um, my brother's memorial service got scheduled for next weekend, so we'll be gone. And Nathan's going to be um, kind of leading everybody through communion on Father's Day. And brother, thanks for doing that. We'll be praying for you. But we pick back up in Genesis 12. It's where we're going to be today. This is a place where faith is born. I say that to kind of capture our attention. Faith isn't actually born here. Okay. But I do want us to consider this. That faith becomes more clearly front and center as the foundation of redemption right here in Genesis chapter 12. Did you hear that? Faith comes more front and center as the foundation for redemption. Here it's born. We're thinking about foundations. It's my job to teach. And one of the things I really want us to understand is right here in Genesis 12 is the foundation of our belief that we access God by faith. Here in Genesis 12, a family is introduced through which the Messiah would come. And through this family, by faith, all nations will be blessed. Genesis 12.3 How are we doing here on sound, guys? Can you hear me okay? It's not enough that we have the reverberation and this thing and the rain. We're doing okay though? Okay. I can hear myself just fine. I just want to check with you. A family is introduced through which the Messiah would come. So now we pick up back where we left off just a few minutes ago when I said we're going to take a break and come back with the Tower of Babel. So just before we get into chapter 12, this other way business, men trying to find another way, has been compounding since Adam and Eve passing Noah So by chapter 11, verse 4, you can turn there. Men have gathered together in a plain, and they decide they're going to build a city. They're going to build this huge tower, and their reasoning goes like this. Come, let us make bricks, verse 3. Then in verse 4 they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And a little later they say, Let us make for ourselves a name. Three times they say, Come and let us do something together. This triple repetition of come let us, ending with we're going to make a name for ourselves, is no impulsive idea born from a bunch of guys standing around drinking beer in a garage someplace. Hey, let's do something crazy. This was a premeditated understanding of we are going to throw off God's rule and rule ourselves. Come, join us. We are going to establish our own kingdom apart from God. We're going to do this another way. We're going to do this thing 
our way. And we're going to make a name not for God. We're not going to do this whole thing with Him. We're going to do this thing for us. Join us this other way. We're going to make a name for ourselves. This is a premeditated advance towards self-rule. They're not just ignoring God's commands, but ascending His throne to make a hostile takeover. And in response, look at verse 7. God says, well, since there's a lot of come let us, God says, come let us go down. Uh, As we approach Father's Day, uh, men, you can take special note that this is the first recording of a dad issuing the declaration, don't make me come down there. But in going down, God disrupts the plans of man to exalt himself. Languages are confused, construction stops, people are dispersed, and God's attempt to, or men's attempt to thwart God's rule is upended. And yet their hearts are not redeemed. So their plans are stopped. So their, but their hearts are not redeemed. And so we come to the end of chapter 11 wondering, what now? Now what happens? The building was stopped, but what's God going to do now? How is He going to respond? What's this plan for salvation? Is it all over? Is He still going to rescue us? By the way, every movie plot that you like, a suspense thriller, has this line of reasoning that it's stolen from the Bible. It introduces this problem. It leaves you hanging. There's a problem, and we're looking for somebody to solve this problem. We're looking for a Savior. This is every Marvel movie, by the way. We're looking for a rescuer. Look at the problem. The world's in chaos. All these crazy aliens flying around with bright blue shining guns. Ooh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so chapter 12, chapter 11 leaves us hanging with this, what now? And chapter 12 begins this hinge story. Everything flips and changes from this point. And so in chapter 12, in saunters a hero. From this point in Genesis 12, the story of redemption pivots. Chapter 12 starts with Abraham and it follows his family all the way through the end of the book through Genesis chapter 50. And so it ends with his great-grandson, Joseph. But like all men heroes, Abraham's entire family has a kryptonite secret. An Achilles heel. This is every Marvel character, by the way, true? They've stolen all this stuff from the Bible. 
Spider-Man has this, you know, bad side, and Batman becomes dark, and Superman has kryptonite and has an evil nemesis born inside of himself, and some of these characters they even name. This is the flesh and the spirit battling. And here comes Abraham. He's a hero, but there's kryptonite. He's got a weakness. And so does his entire family line. And so from, from the time Abraham is introduced all the way till we get to Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, Abraham's family is united by two consistent themes. Here they are. The first one is each generation, each family, each supposed hero is marked by repeated failure. Kryptonite. Foolish choices. Bad decisions. They make these poor decisions. Their flesh pops out. And they mess up their lives. And they put God's promises in jeopardy. That's the first theme that characterizes Abraham and his entire line. And the second theme is this. In spite of this, God remains faithful to His promises and to His people. Despite their failings, God rescues His people from themselves and He keeps reaffirming His commitment to His children, to His promised beloved ones, to bless them and to bless the nations through them. And so these two themes, man's failure and God's faithfulness, tumble around the rest of the book of Genesis like two preteen brothers wrestling vying for position. But there's a constant victor. And the victor is captured in a quote at the end of Joseph's life. And it ties up the remainder of the book of Genesis. And it is a quote spoken by Joseph. But it's strategically placed at the end of Genesis because not only does it capture the theme of Joseph's life and his relationship with his brothers, but this quote is specifically placed at the end of Genesis because it captures the whole theme of the book of Genesis. Here's the quote. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as yet they still are today. You meant evil, but God took your evil and He consumed it and He made it do good unto me. Guys, any everybody asks you, If God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? You tell them, my God is so big that he can consume all this evil and one day he's going to right it all. It's not just that he can stop it, but he can absorb it and then he can turn it and he can make it do good. That's how powerful my God is. That's the God I'm following. This weak, limp-wristed God that the culture is pervading and putting out there is too weak. We have a God who doesn't just 
rub his hands, wringing his hands about evil. He literally consumes it and then makes it do good unto his sovereign purposes. That's the power of the living God. You with me? So from Genesis 3 onwards, humans keep acting selfishly and doing evil. They keep going this other way. But God is the ultimate victor. At the end of every match, the referee is holding God's hand up. He wins. He's not going to leave the world to its own devices. Hello. As evil as our world is, church, God is doing something and He will do something about it. He remains faithful and determined to bless His people despite their or our failures. So remember 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, He is faithful for He cannot deny Himself. So all this is important for our study today. This is our story. The world in chaos is not the end. Your world in chaos is not the end. I'm personalizing this, church. Your world, your personal world in chaos will not have the final say the problems that you came in here today will not rule your life forever they won't even though men are hell-bent on the other way intending evil God will see it to good He will consume it and destroy it and change its very essence. If you look too much at the world, hear me, if you spend too much time considering what is going on in the world, you will be sucked into chaos and disorder and fear and you will sin. As a result, here's the irony. The thing you fear the most, you become. You fear the sin and everything that's going on in our world, church. You will sin. You will become sin. If you fear the chaos and the destruction in the world, and that's your greatest fear, you will become destructive and chaotic and sinful. The very thing that you fear most you become. And so our aim, Christians, is to be like Abraham with our lives rooted in faith in what God says, not necessarily what we can see. And like Abraham, we will see, we will not walk in faith perfectly. This is good news because even though we cannot walk in faith perfectly, 
God is still faithful to himself. Our redemption is not about perfection. Our redemption is not about our perfection. God will still be faithful. The story of man ends hopeful. If you have some leftover eschatology from the 70s and the 80s where everything is doom and gloom and you, this whole thing's coming apart and you're fearful and begrudging and, and you don't have the hope of the reality of a conquering God whose gospel story penetrates and permeates everything including us and including us right now and that our story ends as one in hope then you have a complete misunderstanding of the Bible and what God is doing. We have the best thing going here, church, and hope should be exuding from us because at the end of the day, this is true for Abraham and it's true for us. God will do what he says. Are you going to put your faith unto action into him? And we have hope. Because this, the story of man, your story, our story, my story, ends well because the Lord says it will. Our Father sees redemption through the end. We believe that and we walk in it. That's why we become salt and light. So in Genesis chapter 12, right out of the gate, we see these Two themes tumbling over each other in the life of Abraham, faith and failure. But more importantly, we see this third component, this trumping component, this victor component in this same chapter, and that is right alongside coming over top of Abraham's faithfulness, but also Abraham's failures, we see the faithfulness of Abraham's God. And so these three things shape this pivot story in Genesis chapter 12. In verses 1 through 9, we see Abraham's faith. In verses 10 through 16, we see Abraham's failures. And then at the rest of the book, uh, chapter 12, 17 through 20, we see God's faithfulness. Let's take a look at Abraham's faith, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, So Abraham went out as the Lord had told him, And Lot went with him. (coughs) Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem 
to the oak of Morah at the time of the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country in the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negeb. <coughs> from the end of Genesis 11, we know a little bit about Abram, but not much of his previous life. We know that his father was a guy named Terah. We know that Terah had two other sons beside Abraham, Nahor and Haran, or Haran. We know that Haran died leaving Terah's grandson, Abraham's nephew, Lot. We know that Terah was taking his family out of Ur and into, the, in, into Canaan. But he ended up settling in a town called Haran, and I believe that was named after his deceased son. We also know that Abraham took a wife named Sarah, who later became barren. That's what we know from the text. But here's what we also know from history. The area that Abraham's family settled in was a high-level civilization. So many scholars of ancient history agree that this was a Babylonian society and it was high in cultural and political splendor. So there was lots of fine cities. There was highly developed art and literature. Um, There was beautiful gems. There was mining. There was um, lots of riches and carvings. There was a well-established legal code and a legal system plus a highly developed religious system. This was this rich area out of which Abraham was called. Why do I tell you all this? Because he wasn't in a real miserable place in a tent somewhere, you know, in the backwoods of East Japipi, right? This was a a rich place that was developed and he was comfortable there. So when we read... God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and God says, Go from your country to this unknown land that I will tell you. We gain a bit of an understanding of what Abraham was leaving with no vision of a destination. I just want you to come out from that place. I'm going to turn you into a nation of new people, and in order for you to be a new nation completely separate, that exemplifies me, you have to come out of that land. Well, where am I going? I'm not telling you that. We like to sterilize Bible characters, church. We like to glaze over this stuff. I'm sure he was just as disrupted about this call to leave his home as you would be if God showed up to you and said, leave, where am I going? Not sure. What direction should I head? You start going and I'll tell you when you're supposed to turn. This was disruptive. Coupled with that, this is not a period of time where families lived a couple hundred miles from each other. Just was almost unheard of. Families almost always lived together in communities, if not in the same house. They were strongly knit. They developed resources together. They built those resources because they worked together, and then they passed or handed these resources off from one generation to the next. 
Thus, when Abraham's call is further developed, he says this, Go from your country (coughs) and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This and your kindred and your father's house, we are supposed to understand that this is unquestionably a monumental movement for Abraham. I'm not just asking you to leave your place. I'm asking you to leave everybody that's ever been close to you. This is a request of action that required everything that Abraham had. He must fully believe unto action what God has said. He couldn't just say, I'm going to leave everything here, I'll journey out a day and a half, and I'll see where you want me to go from there. Then if this whole thing works out, I'll send for my family. We know that because it says in verse 4, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. He was 75 years old. And Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and his brother's sons, and all their possessions, and all the people they had acquired. This is a troop. This is a major life movement. Going where? I don't know. He must fully believe unto action what God has said. What did God say? He said, go. He made a request. But he also made a promise. Starting in verse 2. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Thank you. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So not only does he make a request, he gives him a promise. Fourfold promise. Land, a new nation, a great name. This is a whole thing in and of itself. But remember in the Tower of Babel, they said, we're going to make a great name for themselves. God said, no, you're not. But he did say to Abraham, I will make you a great name. He'll give him a great name. And then the fourth part of this blessing is this. I will bring about redemption through you. Take hope, Abraham. Not only is this going to be good for you, I'm going to redeem the entire world through you. God does call Abraham to leave abundance, but not without the motivation of blessing. Take note, 
blessing for obedience is a repeated theme all throughout Scripture. The Holman Bible Commentary says this, When God calls us to a personal sacrifice, He compensates by great promises of blessing. You can scarcely turn the page in the Bible where God isn't promising blessing for acting faith. God is sensitive to our human frame and He does not leave us without motivation. So He promises blessing. And those promised blessings are apprehended by faith unto action. Church, not perfection. This is one of the lessons for Abraham. God's blessings did not come to Abraham because he applied himself perfectly. But because God is faithful, and Abraham apprehended those blessings by faith unto action. I'm really jealous for us to understand this by way of application and trying real hard and hoping the Spirit, trusting the Spirit to do His job in running this stuff deep into our hearts. Church, I'm not just talking to hear myself. These things are really true and they have to find their way into our life, into our souls, this reality of us believing God unto action. Faith unto action is everything. And the fact that God offers blessing for us in obedience is a great grace to us. Any time you are asked to leave some kind of familiar dwelling, I'm not just talking about a house, I'm talking about a course of action, a way of living, a comfortable way of thinking. Church, by way of application, any time God asks us to move from a familiar dwelling and you don't practically know or can't see the end result, you can't quite cognitively get there or experientially understand how this is all going to work out. But you're motivated to do so and to obey because God offers you a promise. Anytime that happens, we have the opportunity to act in faith. It's not just, you know... Pack up your family, start driving these big, huge missionary moves. Church, these are everyday little things. Sometimes it's getting up out of bed. Sometimes it's a new job. Sometimes it's obeying your parents. Sometimes it's loving your spouse. It's not just these big, huge actions of faith. It's daily and practical. Anytime God asks you to move past a way of thinking or past a way of living that you cannot, you cannot 
Rubik's cube it and get all the colors to match. You can't get the puzzle figured out. Anytime you don't know what to do, but you say, God, I'm going to move towards you in faith because I believe what you say over my own experiences. Church, that's our opportunity to act like Abraham in faith. We've got to stop making it about this theological wrestling so that we can just gain intellectual understanding, church. I'm really jealous for us to say, I'm really jealous for some of you in your marriage to say, I have to stop acting like that because it's not change, it's not doing me any good and I need to follow God by faith and it makes zero sense to me. And not only is it going to bless and redeem my own life, I'm believing in the promises of God, but by me acting in faith and obeying God in faith, even when it doesn't make sense, redemption is going to follow and flow from me through other, to, through me to other people. And we see this in the life of Abraham. Later we'll talk about this a little bit, but this is what Abraham was commended for, and this is why he was called God's friend. What about his failure? Verses 10 through 16. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter into Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but that you might live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that when my life may be spared for your sake. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abraham well. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants, female donkeys and camels. Abraham had got himself into quite a pickle. In this story, Abraham was not walking by faith as he once was in the beginning. God made a promise to him, and God would keep them. But somehow Abraham got distracted. He started trusting in something else, and so he goes another way. It's possible that even Abraham's journey to Egypt was born out of fear. There's a famine. I'm not sure God's going to take care of me, so I'm going down there. Fear begets fear. Later, the prophet Isaiah would say this in chapter 36, verse 6. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. And again, this passage was written after Abraham's time, but it still captures our propensity to trust in man and to trust in other things other than God. But whether it's true or not that Abraham went in fear to Egypt, some commentators say it wasn't about that. Some commentators say it was. But regardless, we do know and we do agree on this, that his scheme with Sarah, his wife Sarah, was born out of fear. So he 
half cobbles together some truths. They did. They were half brother and half sister. I know that's weird to us. It wasn't weird back then, but it was true. So he cobbles together some half concocted story and he ends up with no wife. And now this promise of God bringing a redemptive seed through Abraham is half gone because his wife has disappeared. So he has put God's promises into jeopardy. Now what's so profoundly helpful in this narrative is the Bible does not shy away from both the successes and failures of its characters. I've often thought, don't we do this? Somebody's in the limelight and then, you know, they're, you know, this great guy and they write a book and everybody's following them and then all of a sudden they have this moral failure and nobody's talking about them anymore because we don't necessarily want to. The Bible doesn't stray away from that. You know why? Because it's not about us. Abraham's failure of faith was not the end of the story. That's the point, or one of the main points. God has made a promise. He will see it through. Obviously, we're not presuming upon this kind of gracious kindness, right? That's another story. But we're obviously not presuming upon God's grace and saying we'll go sin anyway. But after all, this narrative account truly is ultimately about God's faithfulness, not Abraham's. That's the point. It's about a patriarch who was rescued from his difficulties of his own making. And we'll see that throughout the rest of the book. All these heroes have to be rescued. And here's one thing we can know for sure. Often after some of our own greatest faith accomplishments our own failures will be sure to follow. Now take a minute to apply this as we wrap up. I've had the opportunity to re- lead a lot of teams or groups in low ropes initiatives. Some of you have been part of these things. If, you, if you've been part of like a low ropes initiative thing, group dynamics, games, who, who's, who's done that? Okay, two. That's great. Well, I've had opportunities with school groups and college groups and corporate groups to lead these team dynamics and trust, and you've seen them, the trust fall, and, you know, you're getting groups to work together and um, see how they can um, come together as a team. There's, there's one activity that's really common in a low ropes course, and it usually involves some sort of cable that's stretched across about, usually it's about three feet off of the ground, and then there's two handles. So there's a handle over here, and then like over where there's this black speaker, there's another handle, and you gotta kinda make your way, but you can't, you can't get to that handle without let going this handle, and then along this, along this uh, cable, your teammates are standing there with their arms up, and they're gonna catch you if you fall. The handles are placed strategically far enough apart so that leaving one to get to the other requires some element of balance, but more significantly so, an element of trust in your team. The wire isn't usually stretched tight. It's kind of got a sag in the middle, so while you're, the, the further you get out, 
you know, the wobbly, the water, the wire starts to get and you feel more and more uncomfortable. But the issue in this entire event, by the way, is not about ability. A lot of people want to make it about ability and um, whether or not they can do it or, well, I don't have good balance. And then there's some of these, you know, athletic types and they're all by themselves and they let go and then they, they just... They, they're able to walk across and do it, and then you get people who aren't as coordinated, and they're making it all about this ability to cross this wire. The, the, the activity is not about ability. It's also not about circumstances. People keep wanting to try to make the handles closer or somehow build some kind of a balancing structure off the handle so they can get from one handle to the other. The event is not about circumstances. It's not about the distance of the handles. The whole thing is designed for you to have to realize it's not about my ability. It's not about the circumstances. It's about my ability to trust my team because the reality is I'm probably going to fall off this cable and these people are going to catch me. Do I really trust I'm going to be caught? The element is all about faith. But you would be surprised how many people and how long it takes from people to let go of one handle to get to the other. And the discussion is all about ability and circumstance. Well, I trust, I trust everybody. I trust everybody. But I can't let go. There's supposed to be these huge aha moments like, oh, I really don't trust, do I? I really don't have faith they would catch me or I would go. What's the big deal? If I fall, they catch me. So I can try it a hundred times. The exercise is about faith. So the application of the message today is faith unto action like Abraham. But again, that doesn't always mean packing up everything and heading out on a really long road trip with no destination. But I think it has an awful lot to do with the everyday, the daily, the mundane. In every circumstance, whenever the handles are stretched far enough that you have to let go of one to get to the other, it's an opportunity to express faith in what God has said and to believe his promises. Let me give you a practical example. I have Mary's permission to share this, uh, but she did say that it was important that I announced that most of this was my fault, not hers. Mary and I had a great um, time in Peru with our kids, but also functioning together Uh, We both really connect over a heart for Latin American people. When we lived in the Dominican Republic, that was true. And we really had a really good time um, connecting in faith over what God had called us to do. When we returned and we started settling in for a variety of reasons, we hit one of the roughest patches in our marriage that we've hit in a really long time. This is just a couple of days ago.
And without going into a ton of details, I can tell you this. We were tempted, especially me, to make our difficulties about abilities. Doing this or doing that or who's doing this part and who's doing that part. God's asking us to stretch from one side to the other and we're tempted to make it about abilities. We were also tempted, more me than Mary, remember that part, to make it about circumstances. Dinging into the past, understanding personality types, what your family was like versus what my family was like, rehashing previous failures, rehashing our old patterns and How well do you think that went? And guys, not for nothing, I've done this for a living. You would think I would be good at this by now. But hear me. This in, this in mine and Mary's relationship is not about circumstances And it's not about abilities. It's about faith. This is true for you too. Maybe it's not a marriage. Maybe it's a job move or a change or this or a parenting thing or whatever that struggle is. It's not about abilities and techniques. it, It really is about living in faith. Hear me. Mary and I got into a really bad space. You know why? Because we were hell-bent on another way. Yeah, I know what God says. I know He says to own my own stuff. I know He says to take responsibility here first. I know He says that my worst enemy is me. But there's another way. You hearing me? Are Are you with me, church? There's another way. And man, Rob gets out his pencil and Rob knows how to work that other way. And it didn't work. We want the blessing of God without obeying God in faith. We want God's blessing while we're going to work it out this other way. This is an issue of faith. And so some of, brother, just so thankful for your teaching. I started crying out to God and saying, Lord, I am working out my own way and I need to obey you in faith. That's what I need to do. It's the only, hear me, it's the only way to solve your stuff. Worldly wisdom has us thinking that before I solve this, I got to understand myself. I got to understand my patterns. I got to understand this. I got, we want to bring the handles in closer. We want to make it so we can just do, yeah. This is what we want. And in faith, 
worldly wisdom wants to connive and make this this spance closer. Okay, you might be able to get it closer. You might get somebody to move that post. But the kind of life that God calls us to always requires a letting go here and a moving to there. And it always requires believing Him unto action. And here's the confidence we can take in this. Even in our foolish diversions from our faith, in our failures, God is still working His sovereign plan. We have these big movements of faith, and then we had this, Mary and I, and then we had this failure. And the way we experienced reconciliation is both of us crying out to God and saying, we want to obey you in faith. And we can't figure it out moving forward. We just know we just want to obey right now in the next three minutes. You know what that means? i got to ask forgiveness. You know what that means? i got to stop trying to think forward. You know what that means? i got to stop trying to solve my problems three weeks from now. Many of you know I did intensive counseling retreats. We would counsel for three days. Almost always, this is almost always true, 90% of the time, we would talk about this as counselors, almost always, the morning of the, the, the time families were supposed to leave, almost always we would show up and it was crisis mode. We thought we had buttoned up everything the night before. If you were an advocate at 12 Stones, you know this is true, or a counselee. You think you button up, you get all these insights, all these great ideas, this is what the Lord says, we're going to do this. And then you leave that night, they have dinner, you show up the next morning, it's chaos. What happened? I'm telling you what happened. And I've realized this in the last couple years. What happened is people start trying to obey forward without any experiential realities of applying that truth. And when we think about solving problems two weeks from now, without the resources to be able to solve those problems. In other words, when we start thinking about eating manna three weeks from now that we don't have, it becomes an impossible task. And we get all insecure and we start gathering up food in baskets for ourselves. You can't obey three weeks from now. And if you think you and whatever problem you're facing has to be able to pull that off three weeks from now, You don't have enough manna for that day. What's our confidence in? Our confidence is not in our abilities to roll this out perfectly. Our confidence is in God. I will obey you in faith, trusting that your promises will work. And when I get there, this will all be in your timing, your hands, your abilities. It's about your faithfulness, not mine. And this is what we see in this chapter all the way through, and it's what we see at the end. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called to Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Even 
in Abraham's failure, God was still faithful. Do you see it, church? Because of his faithfulness, we can obey in the next five minutes. And that's all he requires of us. So here's the application for us. Faith in what God has said. There is no other way. We must obey what God has said in faith. There is no other way. There is no other substitution. And there is no negotiation. In big areas and small areas, whatever changes our lives, the thing that will change our lives is believing God's truth and then living accordingly. Faith unto action. We do not have the luxury of saying we have faith in God, but we refuse to cross from handle to handle because we're convinced He will not catch us. Faith that perseveres. We will not do this perfectly, but it's about God's faithfulness, not our perfection. And lastly, faith that rests in God's plan not our perfection. So the author of Hebrews says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham is the father of faith. The Jews still call him that till this day. He's called that all over in Scripture. And it's with this faith that Abraham pleased God. That's why in three different places in Scripture, by three different authors, Abraham is called the friend of God. That title is given to nobody else in Scripture. But it wasn't because his faith was perfect. What was it that made him God's friend? Because he believed what God has said. He believed unto action. He persevered in that faith even when he didn't do it perfectly. And he rested in God's plan, not his own perfection. So Isaiah 41 says, But you, O Israel, my servant whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Second Chronicles 20, verse 7 says, Did you not... Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And James 2.23 says, The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Church, what, what would it be like to be called the friend of of God. You know how we be, you know how we're called the friend of God? When we obey him in faith unto action believing what he has said. Would you love to be called the friend of God? Man, I would. then obey him in faith. 
joyfully knowing that he will do what he says he's going to do. Father, we thank you for your great kindness to us and the hope of the gospel, even in Abraham's story, that he didn't do it perfect. It's not about Abraham. It's about you and your graciousness and kindness. And we do not want to presume upon that. As a matter of fact, Lord, we, we, it, it, it drives us to be in, more in love with you and more obedient and more expressively affectionate to you and to those in our lives. We thank you for this account in the life of Abraham and we want to find ourselves more like him, obeying, believing what you have said unto action, persevering in that faith and trusting your ultimate plan. And we need you for that. And we trust you to do that in our lives and we give you thanks that you have been doing it. Because of Christ our King. Amen.